ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. So Tegan, what tricks do you use to optimise your exercise regime? Oh, gosh. I think the most effective trick I have is to show up to the gym. <laughs> oh, that's, that's pretty basic, yeah. That seems yeah. to correlate mostly to me getting a good workout. No, no, no. I'm an early morning exerciser and I, if I'm really sort of wanting to go hard, a banana and black coffee is my like pre-workout. And oh, isn't that interesting? Black coffee, well, it's another what's that rash, but black coffee, research at the University of New South Wales shows that black coffee, green tea, increases the oxidisation of fatty acids when you're fasting. What does that mean? It means that you burn more fat. But, oh. but the banana will stuff that up. Well, no, the banana's there for like quick fuel, like carbohydrates. And the coffee, I don't know, I, <laughs> I read somewhere sometime that that was like a good thing to have before work. It's also easy to stomach first thing in the morning. But I definitely notice a difference when I have that. It's my little pre-workout. How about you? Well, showing up is pretty important, varying it because I get bored really easily. And sometimes I'll take a black coffee beforehand just because I listened to University of New South Wales research and burning fat in the hope that will burn more fat. The whole optimising of workout thing is a whole scene, though. There's so much around it. Some of it is better than others, I think, in terms of the research. Which is what this What's That Rash is all about. It is indeed. I am health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Tourable Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. Well, the question here is actually from Claire who says, I'm actually a GP from Adelaide and I have a question about menstrual tracking and fitness. I've seen a lot of fitness influencers and apps promoting tracking your diet and exercise along with your cycle and adjusting it accordingly. I'm just wondering what the evidence base is for that. I do love that a doctor is writing in to us to ask for advice, Norman. It, it, yeah, it scares it, the shit out of me, actually. It does. <laughs> Me too. Your algorithm probably doesn't serve you this sort of stuff, Norman, but I get so much of it. And, you know, I'm like being fit and I follow people who are in the fitness space online. And there's a lot of women athletes who sort of go like, oh, this is what I do to sync my training regime up with my menstrual cycle. And then there's apps that can help you track it, like Claire says. And on one hand, you're like, cool, like a data point that I can hack in some way. But I've also been around the block enough times in this health space to know that it's probably not evidence-based. So what are, the, what, what are these trackers claiming to do? Most menstrual tracking apps are for people who either want to be able to predict when their period is going to be or they're trying to fall pregnant. And that makes total sense because you want to be tuned into your cycle if you're trying to fall pregnant because that's what it's all about. Well, this um, might be another watch that rash, but are they accurate in doing that? Ah, it depends on the app and it depends on how much information you put into it because I guess we probably should do a little bit of sciencey scene setting. So the menstrual cycle, we're all sort of taught that it's 28 days. It can actually vary quite a lot. But basically what you have is four phases across the, let's just call it a month, the menstrual phase where you're bleeding, the follicular phase where your body's getting an egg ready to release, ovulation, which is when the egg is released, and then the luteal phase, which is that sort of final part after the egg's released and before you have your period again. And which is where the, where the uterus is growing, the lining is growing ready to accept a fertilised egg. Exactly. And if the egg doesn't get fertilised, then all that lining gets shed and that's what we sort of interpret as being a bleed. And hormones change during these various phases. I mean, oestrogen goes up and down, progesterone goes up and down. And we know that there's hormonal effects from these because a lot of people really experience that. But how much of an effect that has on your sports performance 
there's actually a really kind of tragic lack of evidence around that. I mean, this all sounds to me like it's framed in a positive way, but menstruation's all for centuries been framed in a negative way. You know, we're not going to include women in medical studies because of menstruation and somehow women are weak because of menstruation. I mean, isn't this just feeding that prejudice? I think that it goes in both directions. So perhaps it could feed the prejudice. And it's also in these spaces, it's very much about like be empowered, like be empowered to know your menstrual cycle or like your body is amazing and it's it's got superpowers that you just need to tap into. There's a real sort of push towards that reclaiming your menstrual cycle as something that's powerful. But in terms of the science like you say, women have been excluded from medical studies over the years quite a lot. And especially in sports and exercise research, there has been a really big review of a lot of different research papers in recent years showing that the representation of women is about 39%. This is sport and exercise research. In sport and exercise research specifically, women in these studies make up 39% of the participants. So well under half. So isn't there some evidence that during the part of the cycle where your estrogen goes up, that injury rates go up? And one of the things they were talking about there, for example, was ACL injury, that your ACL, women's ACLs get a bit softer during that part of the cycle. What's the evidence on that? You know that ACLs is one of my special subjects these days. There are studies that do seem to show this, but it does seem to be that the sample sizes are really small and the way that they identify what part of the cycle that women are in is really hit and miss. So sometimes they might be taking hormonal samples to test where someone is in their cycle and other times they're just asking the athlete when they last had a period. And so they're calculating something based on that, but it might not be based on that athlete's actual cycle. Um, The other thing is there was one study that I looked at, one very small study with a few problems with it, but they were saying that athletes were most likely to have injuries on day one or two of their menstrual cycle. Day one or two of your menstrual cycle, there's all sorts of things going on beyond the laxity of your muscles. You're maybe cramping, you may be feeling emotional, you may be worried about bleeding in front of your teammates. Like there's so many other things that could be going on in an athlete's mind on those days that could be accounted for for things other than just the hormones on the structures of your body. So let's go back to these tracking apps. Is there any consistency about what they recommend according to the phase of menstruation, even if there was any evidence for it? I mean, there's consistency of vibes, but there isn't really consistency of evidence. So even with some of the period tracking apps that exist, they didn't even tell you when your fertile window was consistently between the apps. And that's for something that's actually tied to the menstrual cycle it's and part has of got the evidence cycle. next to it. Yeah, exactly. And so then if you're trying to then extrapolate from that into sports performance or what you should be eating or doing at different phases of the cycle, it's it, you're really overreaching. There is a kind of vibe around that during menstruation that you're doing more gentle stuff, walking, training for flexibility, that when you're in that follicular phase that you're doing cardio, strength training, and then kind of ratcheting that up during ovulation. And then in the luteal phase, that kind of final quarter of the cycle before you menstruate again, that you're maybe dialing it back down again, strength training and walking. And my understanding of it is that what we actually have evidence for at a population level is really, really thin. 
But for an individual, tracking that sort of thing and seeing how you feel at different phases of the month might actually be useful. But the claims that apps like this are making, and these apps are money-making machines, like we can't forget that this is an industry, they're not as evidence-based as they sometimes make themselves out to be. What do they do then with elite sports people and coaching? Because we're talking about money, that's where the money is um, in more ways than one. Do coaches change their training there? Because coaches, good coaches, are evidence-based. And they, what do they do with female athletes? They might not necessarily be evidence-based, but they're definitely data-driven. And so I know that this is a data point that elite athletes are trying to capture. And what we do know about performance is that Olympic medals have been won and world records have been broken at every phase of the menstrual cycle across different types of sport. So there obviously isn't any kind of universal knowledge about this. We also know that if you ask athletes when they would like to compete, if it was up to them, that the majority of people prefer to compete directly after their menstrual cycle. So there is sort of a feeling within an individual athlete that perhaps they perceive that they perform best at that time. And yeah, definitely coaches are tracking this and individual athletes are tracking this. And I think the thing with something like really elite performance is even if the hormonal effects on performance are really minor, when you're at that really elite level, the tiniest bit of an edge could be the thing that wins you a medal. So I think we do know that athletes can perform really, really well at kind of any part of their menstrual cycle. But depending on your body and how you respond, like Norman, I want to know, like how bad do physical symptoms have to be for you, for you to like skip a gym day? Well, or psychological ones. I, if I'm feeling low, um, I will go to the gym. That actually is a motivator for me to go to the gym because I know that I'll feel a hell of a lot better after I've been to the gym or been for a long swim. So low mood motivates me to go out and do more. And if I've got migraine, a, lot, a headache or something like that, I'll probably skip it. Mm. I'm thinking about myself. I definitely like adapt what type of exercise I do based on how I'm feeling. If I'm feeling really strung out, climbing's good for me because I've got to think so hard about what I'm doing that I can't be sad anymore. But I don't know if weightlifting would suit me on days like that. I think I'd just get angry. I mean, I do wonder what proportion of female athletes are on the pill to just get rid of this cycling effect. That was something I was thinking about when I was looking at this as well, because there really is an assumption here that all athletes are in a natural menstrual cycle. They're not pregnant. They're not breastfeeding. They're not on hormonal contraception. They're not perimenopausal or menopausal and that their cycles are completely normal and healthy, which actually narrows it down to a pretty small proportion of people when you take all of those other things into consideration. Do you think we're getting a bit too obsessional and measuring too much? Uh, yes, I personally do. This is one of those things for me that I, I kind of wonder whether, on one hand, I think it's good to know yourself. And if you're an elite athlete, you need every edge you can get perhaps. But I do sometimes wonder with these things where we're obsessively tracking, a lot of these apps, you're also tracking your exercise and your food intake. And I am not a dietitian or a psychologist or, <laughs> or a doctor, but I do wonder whether it perhaps feeds into behaviours that can become slightly obsessive and maybe feed into other unhealthy behaviours. Well, if that doesn't get some letters going towards that rash, nothing will. Oh, come at me, people. I want to hear it. So, bottom line? Bottom line is 
a lot of these apps claim to be evidence-based. There's not no evidence out there, but it's pretty thin and it's pretty hard to find consensus research about it. We just don't really have enough evidence for that. And so beware anytime someone's trying to sell you something. But at an individual level, as an individual athlete, if you are noticing things in your body that help you perform better or just feel better when you're exercising, go off. That's awesome. But at a population level, we probably don't have the data to support this. Well, thanks, Tegan. And let's go to your feedback. So I asked people to send in their grossest tooth stories. And it was a throwdown. And I really feel like people have delivered. Ken's dad, I think, wins the lottery here. My father was born in 1918 and prior to war service in 1940, he elected to have all his remaining teeth extracted and to get dentures paid by the Navy. Very common in those days. The wedding present, families giving their daughter to a man for marriage just to have her all her teeth out so that um, she didn't incur any dental bills. Anyway, that's... An, I it, thought that was an urban myth. No, absolutely not. Oh, my God. Years later, when he was in his mid-60s, a roaming wisdom tooth erupted in the middle of his palate... <laughs> which required difficult surgery to remove. Are you wincing yet, asks Ken. I'm doing the maths. He was 22. Oh, and you didn't say this out loud, Norman, but Ken says in his message that the remaining teeth that his 22-year-old father had was 12. He had only 12 teeth left at 22. And this tooth erupted in the middle of his palate. <laughs> his mouth. It's just not very useful at all. I just often thank my lucky stars that I was born at a time with good dental care antibiotics and air conditioning. And then there's this other uh, note from Adelaide. When I was in primary school, my mum was doing a PhD in comparing trace element analysis of children's teeth 100 years ago to the present. Since she needed some modern day teeth for comparison, she managed to get a collection box in our school office for parents to drop off their kids' teeth. That's a change <laughs> from the tooth fairy. I had to put up with so many weird looks and comments that year. I mean, the things that parents do to their children. I love that. I reckon Adelaide's mum is the tooth fairy. Absolutely. I think she was using those teeth for something good. And I, that's what I always thought the tooth fairy was doing. And did she bribe the parents? And lastly, Vicky, I was told to have all my four wisdom teeth out at the age of 23 as they were apparently impacted. But I wasn't feeling any pain or having any real problems with them. I'd gone to the dentist for an unrelated issue. I booked a date for the surgery, then talked to others who'd had it, and their stories were all about pain, excessive bleeding and infections, so I cancelled. I decided I'd wait till I actually had problems with them before I had them out. And Vicky ends her note by saying, I'm nearly 79 <laughs> and still have my wisdom teeth. Good on you, Vicky. Is it one of those things that comes in and out of fashion, Norman, that you sort of get all the wisdom teeth taken out prophylactically, the, the dentists are all recommending that, and then it's like, oh, that's not evidence-based, like less is more, kind of swings back in the other direction. As we said in our podcast on wisdom teeth, dentists still vary about whether or not they should prophylactically remove wisdom teeth, and there's been a move away from that in recent years. Well, if you want to send us a message about your teeth, or about whether you track your hormones and whether it's improved your performance, or if you want to ask us a question, you can email us. Our email address is thatrash at abc.net.au. And no funny emails from men, please. You know, if you exercise a lot, your testosterone will go up a little. So just, <laughs> you know, there is a cause and effect here. Anyway, we'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.